From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. When I was graduating, my academic advisor actually said to me, don't do it. His wife had been a journalist and she became an academic. He said, uh, stay in school, go get you know an advanced degree, get your PhD, why don't you teach or something. He's like, journalism will only break your heart. Margaret Brennan is the new face of one of Washington's oldest political shows, CBS News' Sunday program, Face the Nation. It's Sunday, June 3rd. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. And she's only the second female anchor in its history. We spoke with Brennan about her transition into the new role, what it's like covering the Trump administration, and what she thinks are the policy issues we should all be paying more attention to in 2018. Trade was very much an issue during the campaign, and maybe a lot of us in the, I think, personally in in journalism, didn't do a very good job of covering trade issues in a real way. Stay tuned for our interview with Margaret Brennan. On the podcast, we'll be bringing you real talk with women bosses, asking how did you make it and what advice would you give a woman looking to lead? If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. And now, our interview with Margaret Brennan. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. We are here today on the brand new set of CBS's Face the Nation, where you are now the anchor. So tell us... Besides busy, how have the first (laughs) few weeks on the job been? Um, It's a bit of baptism by fire, a lot of new, um, but all in a good way. Because as you say, brand new set, brand new building, brand new technology, brand new team, brand new host. (laughs) So um, it's been a lot. We've, I think, though, hit the ground running. Um, I think we've had a string of really high profile, high quality guests and a lot of news to go with it, as you say, um, particularly on the breaking news front with North Korea, with the Iran deal and the ongoing legal troubles for the president. It seems like every week we start with, okay, where are we going to be by Sunday? We reshuffle a few times and, uh, you know, it's a totally different place than where we thought we would be when we came in on Wednesday. Yeah, I imagine that has to be one of the biggest challenges, right? Because the news we were just talking before we started about, you know, one day can have seven news stories and then the next day have a seven more. Yes. And life, like life cycles to those news stories when one of those should have sustained you for a few weeks time because they're so significant. In the, in a broad sense, obviously Face the Nation has been around for a long time. Bob Schieffer, kind of iconic host for a long time. You took over for John Dickerson. Are you planning any kind of dramatic shift from your predecessors or do you see it more as a continuation? It's the first new real estate in over 50 years, so that's pretty dramatic for us. We're still, in terms of the set. <laughs> in terms of the set and the technology. Um, you know, all of this, you don't see it and you're not meant to, but just how we do our jobs uh, technically has changed. So that's a pretty dramatic thing for most of the team that has been with the show for so long. Um, obviously, I'm a big change as well. Mm. But um, the tradition is what 
I felt very strongly about our executive producer, Mary Hager, feels very strongly about upholding. Um, and that is just continuing to have this be sort of a refuge from the shouting matches and the news deluge and a place that people can get a good, thoughtful conversation about policy, um, some politics, but of substance on a Sunday morning. And so that's what we want to continue but we're going to make it, you know, a bit more modern, feel differently, right. uh, and look a bit differently as well. So people always ask me, they're fascinated by our days, our lives as journalists. And you went from kind of being a beat reporter, you know, kind of that regular drumbeat to a weekly show in this 24-hour news cycle. Right. What, like, when does your week start? When does it end? Does it ever end? What's the busiest day? <laughs> it never really ends. Um, you know, that's what's, I've, I've held a number of different jobs in different worlds that are colliding here. You know, having covered Wall Street for a decade, having covered uh, national security, having covered the White House, not just any White House, but the Trump White House is a unique experience. And so um, being on that beat like I was, um, I think all of us got into that incredibly hard-driven cycle. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time trying to still meet with people, have, you know, background conversations, off-the-record conversations, the kind of reporting that I've been doing, but to do it now to make sure that I'm not in a bubble on right. Sunday, that I know what people on Capitol Hill are actually talking about and where the story is going. So I've really tried to stay in it um, in the news storm <laughs> in some ways, uh, in order to keep us on the right track. No, in terms of, you know, the kind of arguing back and forth right. and the discourse that's happening right now. I asked Martha Raddatz, who is co-host of ABC's uh, This Week, about kind of being great. a woman mm -hmm. and in kind of pressing and how do you as the interview, because it's often perceived differently if a woman does it than if a man does it potentially. Right. How do you approach that in terms of making sure you're doing tough questions that are substantive, but are also kind of getting beyond kind of the BS that, you know, the talking points <laughs> that everybody has. That's the challenge all of us have is to right. get beyond the talking points. Um, no, I, I understand the question. It's a, it's a fair one. It, it's, it's hard to um, filter for someone. I think women are always aware of how they're perceived because they're taught to be mm -hmm. that, um, be hyper aware of that. But I think as one, um, editor said to me, you know, you can ask any question as long as you ask it respectfully. <laughs> uh, and that's just how I approach asking questions. Um, I think if there's a filter based on gender, that's their problem. Um, I hope certainly for uh, the audience that they don't view that mm -hmm. differently, that they're listening with the same ear, no matter who the host is, that they're still looking for substance, that they're still looking for fairness, and that that's how they'll um, filter the information they're receiving. What has been the best piece of advice that you've gotten before you took the show or since you've taken the show? The best piece of advice? Um, John Dickerson, I talked to a bit, Bob Schieffer, I talked to a bit, said don't, don't go in wanting to change everything or change anything uh, in the first year. Um, but also both said to me, you know, look, you, you have this. You've, you've got these skills. Um, you've covered this White House, which is a very different thing than most people who've worked in Washington uh, for the past decades. Um, 
you've come from foreign affairs, if people think in this environment that doesn't matter, because that's often been the case, and you find that often um, on Capitol Hill, people sort of think of national security as in its own bucket. And I think particularly with this administration, that's not the case. National security is something President Trump very much campaigned on. The security idea or feeling a lack of security is something that was very much an issue during the campaign. Trade was very much an issue during the campaign, and maybe a lot of us in the, I think, personally in, in journalism, didn't do a very good job of covering trade issues in a real way. I think if you don't, if you don't understand that foreign policy does matter, then you're not listening to the Iowa soybean farmers who are very concerned about what's going to be happening with China and trade and tariffs and the threat of all of that. So they were very encouraging of me in saying, you have this unique skill set. And so weave that together. So yeah, I think that's the best advice. And the ask anything but ask it respectfully is a good rule of thumb. It's a good maxim for most of us (laughs) in the world, journalism or otherwise. Right. Uh, Well, let's take a step back. Talk about how you got here uh, to anchoring your own show at a major network. You've been in TV news for a while. Um, just to kind of briefly go through it, you had an internship with CNN in college where you attended UVA. After college, CNBC came calling. Uh, you got a, lot, a job doing research and helping them produce Wall Street Week program. Then you eventually worked your way to CNBC and anchor at Bloomberg and then at the State Department uh, for CBS. Mm-hmm. That's a mouthful. That's a lot of, that's a lot of different <laughs> gigs along the way. Um, but talk to me, did you always know you wanted to be a reporter or did no. some, something happen? No, I didn't. Um, I went to the University of Virginia and I studied foreign affairs, Middle East studies, a double majored, and I minored in Arabic. And when I started out at UVA, I knew foreign affairs was going to be my major from the get-go. But, and the Middle East was the area of interest, you know, when you have to pick a region of expertise. The language, I figured, made sense. I should probably speak the language of the area I'm a quote-unquote expert in. Um, And I wasn't sure what I was going to do with that degree. I thought maybe um, I'd go into diplomacy. Did I really know what that meant? No. I thought, oh, you work at the UN or you, you know. It sounds good, though. It It sounds sounds very interesting. When you're 18, right? And I just knew the things that fascinated me were these moments in time when history takes a turn, when uh, social movements bring about some kind of change, whether it's violent, it's revolution, or whether it's something else. Like understanding the why and what that mix of elements always fascinated me. And, you know, my mom says she let me watch the news too much when I was little. And that the Middle East, you know, there's always news coming out of the Middle East uh, and that that was part of that. I don't know. But those threads of political change, you know, always fascinated me. And then uh, 9-11 happened um, when I was still an undergrad. So all of a sudden, these subject areas that I was studying that weren't very well funded to be honest, you know. <laughs> you were ahead of the curve. I mean, you were, we were studying something before it became a massive... I was studying something because I loved it. Right. But, you know, we were in the basement of Cabell Hall, which is the main uh, arts um, uh, undergraduate building on the grounds of UVA. Uh, Russian studies was still, and Soviet studies was still very well funded. That's kind of where people were mentally at the time. And all of a sudden, this stuff came into vogue. And these very different jobs or very different ways of using your degree are what people started suggesting. You know, oh, you could work for the government, but it's working on very different kind of things with policy. And I had already gone abroad and studied in Jordan for a semester. 
And that first person experience changed things for me. It was the first time that I ever took what I was learning in the classroom and applied it to real life, particularly for language. That's incredibly humbling um, to feel like you're a five-year-old child struggling to explain, explain yourself to a cab driver uh, as if your life <laughs> depended on it. You know, these things that really made me um, appreciate first-person experience in a different way. And it was sort of through that that I came back and I said, well, maybe I don't want to be a diplomat. Maybe I don't want to work within the bureaucracy. And my mom suggested, why don't you try um, journalism and media? Because you're always sort of yelling at the TV set about coverage. Lack of context or, well, that's, you know, that's not fair. Um, And so I interned at CNN and... I was lucky um, that I was able to stay with my aunt and uncle down in Atlanta for a summer and commute in on the MARTA for an unpaid internship at CNN headquarters. And I love being in a newsroom. So that's what turned the corner for me. And when I was graduating, my academic advisor actually said to me, don't do it. His wife had been a journalist and she became an academic. He said, uh, stay in school, go get you know an advanced degree, get your PhD, why don't you teach or something? He's like, journalism will only break your heart. <laughs> particularly if you're reporting in the Middle East. And he, he said, and if you're going to do this, give yourself about five years and then turn back to ac- academia. So I had in my mind when I got going five years before I go back to school, unless I really can make some headway. So talk about that, because obviously right now, as you said, the Trump administration has put such a spotlight on security on certain flashpoint areas around the world that typically the news doesn't cover a lot of in America, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, you were covering foreign affairs and, and a foreign affairs correspondent for a long time. Did you ever feel like I mean, you were just fighting to get anything on air at some of these moments? Absolutely. Um, you know, I started at CBS in 2012, right about then, and I came from covering Wall Street. And when you are covering the financial world, there is so much implied knowledge in what you're reporting every day. You don't need to explain to someone why necessarily why you know what's happening in Iraq or Libya matters. They inherently know it's going to influence oil prices, right? You, there are dots that obviously connect for people. There's political risk that's always being priced in. And often in mainstream news, we keep things very separate because they're easier to digest that way, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easier to have a business section that's separate from the international <laughs> section that's separate from the domestic politics section. And that's not really how things function. That's not how the world functions. And that's certainly not how Washington functions. All those things intersect. So I saw a lot of those connections, but it was a challenge for me to figure out how to pitch things in easily digestible bites for um, for the network. It, it was a real learning curve when I came here um, from covering things the way I had in the past. Still figuring out now, this many years into it, how to make topics like trade understandable and interesting to people. Um, when it, And that's one of the things that's so challenging because if you go back and you look at 2016, what was one of the things that most um, angered people and and actually was this common thread between the Bernie Sanders campaign and the Trump campaign? Free trade, right? right? Hillary Clinton, we made that story about TPP based on, oh, well, she flip-flopped and she did campaign for it because I know I've spent a lot of time in Asia with her when she was pushing TPP. It wasn't about the person. It was about the policy. And then at the policy, it was about what was happening in so many parts of these countries. 
economically in the country, counties in this country. And I think even with our November congressional races, right? Mm -hmm. Are we just going to view this as a test of, of Trump? So it's constantly a challenge. Right, to get beyond and also to illustrate, right? You're to illustrate. You're a visual medium exactly. in a way that is, it's sometimes I think can be very challenging. Exactly. And, you know, I covered the diplomatic deal with Iran and all of that. And so um, I was really fortunate that CBS knew that that was going to be a huge, important story and sent me for as long as they did to cover the ins and outs of that diplomacy. When you've been abroad, what have been some of the big, I mean, as a woman, have there been challenges that you think you've faced or that has been different, you've been perceived differently in different countries, or you've kind of had to approach your job differently? Well, you have to spend longer in hair and makeup (laughs) (laughs) before each show. Um, You know, that's just sort of the the technical aspects of it. Um, I, I don't, I am not keenly aware, I don't, think first of my gender. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure, you know, now I'm transitioning into this different part of my life where I'm going to be a mom in a few months. And I think those realities of um, parenthood, it's not really specific to the gender, right? Mm-hmm. But it's part of parenthood. Um, it's going to have to make me think about juggling in a different way. Um, and I mean, in terms of access and things like that, I've just always adjusted to the custom and tried to get my job done. Mm-hmm. You don't want to shake my hand because I'm a woman. really is not going to bother me because you're still sitting and talking to me. Right. That's what matters. And oftentimes people will um, be more conversational with you about their first-person stories because they feel some sort of empathy or less threatened. Connection, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I haven't found it to be a hindrance at all. Yeah, I always try to think about it as trying to use those things to your advantage, right? Instead right. of thinking of them as the thing that keep you back. Right. You can't let them think. You can't think that way. Right. Well, let's talk about this kind of more broadly. Obviously, culturally, right now, there's a, a massive movement happening with Me Too, Time's Up, women in the workplace. What's your take on it? Obviously, CBS has had its own issues. Um, you know, I feel like a lot of these conversations for this women's podcast deal with, you know, have you had your own Me Too moment? How do you deal with it? What's your advice you give to other women? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, as this um, sort of moment, movement, however we're going to refer to it, because uh, I think we're still living it and not sure if it's... it's not, I don't think it's over. I don't think it's over. Um, and I don't know that we've seen the last of the impact. But, you know, privately, when I've had conversations with friends, it was sort of not uh, Me Too. It was like, well, who hasn't? Who hasn't had an experience like that? Um, And, you know, in recent years, it was a choice I made um, when I have been asked to, you know, speak to young women or gotten contacted by young journalists who've asked for advice. Um, And the one sort of different piece of advice that I give to the young women versus the young men is to think about what you're going to do before you are in a situation like that. But I gave, started giving that advice before this Me Too movement. But it was a choice that I felt really kind of guilty about. And I didn't know if I should say something because you don't want to crush someone's idealism. You don't want to make them feel less enthusiastic about the job they're about to start or the career they're about to launch. But I did feel, and I remember because I was sitting with a group of high school students, this was like last summer, And I said, 
and I want you all to, to stay enthusiastic and stay excited, but I do want to say something because I feel like I need to. All of you need to think about what you're going to do if you get into a situation like this um, and think of it ahead of time. And the reason I say that is because no one told me that when I was graduating so from true. college. And I felt some responsibility to just say, be prepared. That in no way means anything is your fault, but you just need to have a little bit more armor. Mm -hmm. um, and be aware that not everyone is perceiving you on the basis of your abilities and your skills. That's their problem, but just don't let their problem become yours. I think it's good advice. I because no one was giving it. I mean, when I, we were right. entering the workforce, right? But, you know, you had that, those moments where your spidey sense kind of you just knew something was not right. You know, it was yes. off. You know, whether, I mean, some people have obviously much more horrific stories, but. Yeah, and you, know. you have, everyone has those, oh, well, avoid being in a room with so-and-so, that kind of thing. Right. Quietly said. It wasn't advertised, but I, I really do not know a woman who does, hasn't had some sort of awkward experience like that. I think that's, that's probably right. I want to talk about something else that's in the news, and it's something that is on my mind a lot, and I get asked a lot about when I'm kind of travel around and give talks, uh, fake news, and the president's kind of harping on news, uh, and the idea of fake news, and kind of attacking journalism in, the, in our profession. How have you dealt with that? How are you worried about how that's eroding kind of people's idea of the fourth estate, and how seriously they take what we do and present to the public? I do worry about that phenomenon. I don't put it fully in the, um, I, I'm not putting this only on President Trump and that phrase fake mm -hmm. news. Um, I think that is clearly damaging. That kind of rhetoric is um, dangerous, but I, I put it in the, again, sort of how do, how do you protect yourself? I think there is such there is very little room for error right now for all of us as journalists. I, when I started covering um, this administration, I was keenly aware of it because people went into it with this, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And to their credit, the Trump administration, for all the rhetoric, has not blocked press access. You remember they were going to move the, the briefing out of the White House. I mean, there was all these all kind that of thoughts. Fear, and, right. All that fear. And I said, I'm not going to let that um, change how I do what I do. And I'm not going to be the boogeyman. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be respectful and I'm going to focus on the facts. I'm just going to stay on that. I think you, you can't engage that rhetoric too much in a way that um, makes you the story. Does it impact? I mean, you, you're in the daily briefing or you were in the daily briefing. And you're kind of going back and forth. And oftentimes it can get be respectful, but it can be very direct questioning. Right. And it should be. But, you know, the bread and butter of your kind of show is, is also getting those same people that you're fighting with on a daily basis potentially to get more information right. to book, be booked on the show or to have the administration say, yes, we are going to put, you know, Mr. Pompeo here uh, on your show. Has that – do you think that's changed at all? I mean, I know you've only done this under the Trump administration, but it seems like there's a, a maybe more tension there than there has been in the past. In terms of, like, how the daily briefing goes? Yeah, the daily briefing and then having to go kind of and also ask them to say, like, oh, and you should put that, you know, these, you know, these officials on the, on the show as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had that experience. I mean, you, you'd have to talk to some of the show bookers in terms of whether they felt a difference. I can say as someone who covered the Obama administration and those White House briefings and, you know, the Obama administration over at the State Department and sometimes at the Pentagon, I asked 
some pretty awkward questions and difficult questions about Syria policy and the Iran deal. And you can go back and you can look at those tapes and um, and you can see that. Um, I always found that people were willing. It, it's funny because there is some of the theater of the what's on camera and what's not, because I found oftentimes the more you knew the ins and outs of the issue and pushed people on it. Sometimes they want to talk about that again off camera. Right. They, might, they probably respect they it, might, but they don't want to do yeah, it. Yeah, they might respect it a little bit more. They might want to say, oh, okay, so I know what you're really getting at. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I couldn't say that, but yes. And here and here and here. So that, what happens on camera, what happens off camera, whether it's the Obama administration or the Trump administration, you know, there is that element of when people are on the record, they stick to the talking points. Right. Um, but you know, the, the Trump administration has been good since I've been in this chair about putting people forward like Pompeo, like ambassador Bolton to talk about some of these big issues like secretary Mnuchin. Do, do you want more access? Do I want more access? Absolutely. Do I wish that the president would sit for a substantive interview with us? A hundred percent. Um, and the last one that he sat with was with uh, my predecessor, John Dickerson, at the 100-day mark. Um, and I think he did one interview after that. And then since then, he hasn't engaged the networks. He's only talked to cable news. Um, I would love for the president to sit for us. All right. Well, we are uh, ending our time here with you. But I want to ask you to look ahead. You've obviously had a very busy uh, couple months. You're um, pregnant. Congratulations, as you said. Mm -hmm. um, what's the thing that, you know, we should look to in the next year for, for Margaret Brennan that you're most excited about or, you know, TBD with the show, things like that? <laughs> Give us a little news. God, I had no idea how big 2018 was going to be. <laughs> I really had no idea um, on, a, on a lot of fronts. So it's always hard to predict. But I think, uh, obviously, for me, September – the, the big date on my calendar is um, having a baby boy. Patience. Thank you. In September, which, you know, I've never been a parent before. And my husband and I are totally um, nervous, I guess, is the right word. Um, <laughs> anxious. Uh, Got to get a lot of planning done on that front, which I really haven't done anything. It's really bad. I've been so focused on work. Um, and, you know, the reason I wanted to make that public because I'm just ahead of my six-month mark is because I want viewers to know what's going on. You know, sometimes viewers see changes in hosts and that becomes a distraction. And I just kind of wanted to get that out there and say, I might look differently. Here's why. And follow, follow us through. <laughs> so they'll see me look a little different and I will have to take some time to actually have the baby. Um but then when we get back, I think there is so much that is almost impossible to anticipate that could be huge, monumental news for us. Um, but I know that when it comes to the November coverage of the congressional races, that's something I plan to be involved with. Um, and we're going to try to figure out how to, how to cover that in the best way for our audience. Um, but yeah, I'd say this has already been a pretty big 2018 <laughs> up to this point, <laughs> starting this show. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Women Rule is produced by Rena Flores. Dave Shaw is our executive producer, and our booker is Jessica Andrews. If you're a fan of the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. 
We've got a lot of great guests coming up. In coming weeks, we'll bring you conversations with actress Bellamy Young and Tamara Mellon, the founder and former creative director of the Jimmy Choo Shoe Line. You don't want to miss any of those episodes, so hit that subscribe button, and thanks for listening.